excited to talk to you about the grace of giving. So, so when you talk about stewardship or you talk about giving in the church, it, there's always kind of this tension between the law, right, and tithing. And should Christians tithe or should they not tithe? If we're not under law but we're under grace, what does that mean? And so I hope that by the end of our time this morning that, that you're going to have a, a fairly clear answer, a really clear answer on, on, on how we as Christians relate to the law and what does it look like uh, for us as believers to operate as a grace-transformed people. Amen? So let's start with the text. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and we, we're going to go to Matthew chapter 5 a little later on, so if you want to go ahead and put a bookmark in Matthew chapter 5, we're going to, we're going to hit that uh, here in a little while. But uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, I'm going to read the first nine verses, and then we're going to jump to chapter 9. We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty has overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. Meaning Titus should finish taking up a collection among the Corinthians just the way they had taken up a collection among the Philippians. And he says, but as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Now we're going to jump down to uh, chapter 9, beginning in verse 6. Paul says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he is distributed freely, he is given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it's also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. 
So that was quite a lot of text, but we'll deal with it. We'll unpack it. The first thing that I want you to see is the big idea. The big idea of the text as a whole is that radical generosity is the New Testament ideal for Christians to strive for. So not necessarily tithing, not necessarily any fixed percentage, but being radically generous. That's the ideal. Uh, And Paul says it is both the result of and a voluntary response to the radical grace of God in Jesus Christ. And so he's, he's saying that people who have experienced the grace of God in their way, in a transformational way, the natural overflow of their life is to be radically generous with all of their resources, not just their money. In this passage, he's focusing in on financial giving. But in every way, we should be an open-handed, radically generous people. The first point is radical generosity in the life of the Christian is the result of the grace of God. So that means that it's not something that is purely human, something that we can conjure up in our own power. But he says this kind of radical generosity is something that that God does in us, not just simply something that we do for God. He says in in verse 1, if you look in your Bible, he says, I want you to know about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. So that given is what we'd call a divine passive, where God is the giver, and they are the ones who receive. This is grace that God has given to these churches. Uh, Grace is an interesting word. It's, It's a word that we use a lot in Christian circles, it doesn't quite mean always exactly what we think it means. When we, when we say the, the, probably the stereotypical definition of grace is unmerited favor. That's how Paul uses it in the book of Romans a lot, is that God has given favor, or in other words, like a positive disposition, right? An openness, an open attitude toward the church or toward people who put their faith in Christ. But the way that Paul uses it in 2 Corinthians and in, in actually in uh, Romans also, Romans chapter 6, he uses it as more like a concrete expression of his favor. So it's not just like a, a positive attitude. So it's like when, when Terry and I got married, my, my, I, obviously she had my favor, right? I had a positive attitude and a positive disposition toward her. I wanted to marry her. But then when we got married... We went down to the bank, and I put her name on my bank account, right? And I gave her, and I didn't have much to have access to, but everything that I had, she had access to. Because she had my favor, a concrete expression of that was, now everything that is mine is yours, and you've got access to it. When Paul talks about the grace of God, that's closer to the idea that he has. It is God making his resources available to his children. So Paul can say in Ephesians, he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's his, that's his grace. Romans chapter 6, verse 23, you can probably finish this sentence. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God, gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That word that's translated gift is grace. Um, so it's this concrete expression of God's favor towards you. Eternal life is God's grace. So it's given by God. It's something that we receive and it transforms us. It changes us. And so it, and in a, it defies natural explanation. You see in uh, verse 2 he says, these, these Macedonians, they were poor. 
He said, in a severe test of affliction, meaning they were being persecuted, uh, maybe similar to what's described in the book of Hebrews, where their land was being seized and they were being harassed and they were being uh, marginalized by their neighbors, means job opportunities were less for them than they were for other people. He says, in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. That doesn't make any sense from a that, that their joy and their joy and their poverty would produce generosity. That's weird. But this is the kind of mathematics that God does, and it does and it doesn't make any human sense, right? The Trinity is is one plus one plus one equals one, and that doesn't make any sense. And if you're, you don't remember in, in your math class, did you ever have a word problem where it says a little boy has two fishes and five barley loaves for a day's journey. How many people, how many men besides women and children can Jesus feed with the two fishes and five barley loaves, right? Well, let's see. If two fishes and five barley loaves feeds a little boy for a day, then my, one. One little boy, that's the answer, right? But it's not. When God gets involved... He feeds 5,000 men besides all the women and children, right? Maybe 10,000 or more people. So that's how God does math. And it says, so God's grace working in these Macedonians produces this sort of absurd uh, generosity, even though they, they're, they're giving out of not what they have, but they're giving out of what they don't have. How surprised would you be if you pulled up to this intersection and a homeless person came and knocked on your window and said, hey, man, can I give you some gas money? I just want I just want to help you out. You look like you need a little help, right? Yeah, can I can I give you a bus pass? That'd be that'd be right. It wouldn't it, it wouldn't happen because they don't have the wealth to give from. And so he says that's it's what it was like. It was like a bunch of broke, happy people wanting to give us money to to take back to Jerusalem. They were broke, but they had the joy of the Lord. And he says that's what God's grace does in your life that even when you're flat broke you can have the joy of the lord that compels you to give to share when people when we think about giving money because we're because we're in this limited human framework a lot of times we think in order for me to give more money i need more money but the apostle paul says that what you really need to give is not more money but you need more grace you need more of God's grace working in your life if you want it to be more radically generous. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4, uh, chapter 4, beginning in verse 15, he says, We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Do you know Jesus was broke? Jesus was flat broke. That guy, he, he traveled from town to town, and the Gospel of Luke tells us that his ministry was supported by some wealthy women who had seen his ministry, who had been inspired by it, and they started, started giving to it. And, of course, I'm sure as Jesus went from place to place, he said the worker's worthy of his wages. So he's doing the ministry, and he's trusting God to provide for him as he goes. But he, had no, he owned no property. He owned no, no possessions of his own. He, he lived an itinerant lifestyle, hand to mouth. I'm just saying, if you're broke, Jesus can sympathize with you. He knows right where you're at. He knows what it is to not have much materially. So we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize. He can sympathize, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. So God's cure for whatever it is that may be hindering you from giving. Maybe, it, maybe you're just greedy. Maybe, uh, maybe you, you love material possessions a little too much, and, and your tendency is to spend on yourself more than you should. Maybe it's a greed issue. Maybe, maybe it's a fear issue. Maybe you're in a, in a, situ, a financial situation where giving is scary. Your, your cost of living has expanded to the margins of your income, and you're like, if I give, I don't know where it's going to come from, right? So you may be fear, maybe not greed. If you, may, you may honestly feel like if I had it, I would give it. Paul lifts up the example of the Macedonians, and he says that the cure for whatever is holding you back is more of God's grace in your life. And you can seek him for that. You can ask God to work that transforming grace in your life that, you can, that will cause you to trust him and that will cause you to give more radically. Who was the most radical giver that Jesus pointed to in, uh, in, in the Gospels? Who, what example did Jesus lift up? Yeah, the, the, the widow's might, we call it. The widow with two, two copper coins. So Jesus didn't point to a wealthy philanthropist as the model for giving. He pointed to somebody who was in their own dire financial need. And he said, this is how you ought to be. He called, when she was dropping her coins in, he called his disciples around and said, hey guys, look, 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 look. This is what it's about. That she so completely trusts God that she would give everything she has. That's the kind of faith that God's radical grace is, works in us and calls us to a radical generosity. Second point, radical generosity should be the Christian's voluntary response to God's radical grace. So while we're talking about the widow's might, I don't want you to think that I'm, I'm trying to twist your arm into giving more. Because Paul clearly says that it's like there's this tension between, and just like everything else that we talk about, that there's this tension between divine sovereignty, what God sovereignly does in our hearts miraculously through his grace, and then yet on this other side there's this human responsibility that we have to respond to God's grace and to actually do it. And so you see in uh, verses 3 and 4, he says that this giving, this radical giving has to be voluntary. He says that these, these Macedonians, they were begging us for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God. From the Macedonians' perspective, they saw this opportunity to give as an opportunity to share in serving the people of God. You know, I, I don't even know if I, I know how to articulate this well, but like when I get a piece of mail that is asking me to send money for a certain cause, I don't usually feel very compelled if I don't have a, a personal connection with it. I don't know who it's from. It's just somebody asking me for money. But the Macedonian believers, they saw themselves as being organically united with the Jerusalem church. That's not just some people out there. That's family, right. right? And that's the sort of organic unity that the Bible says we have with all believers all around the world. I've got a, a pastor that I met this past summer. He's building an orphanage in Uganda. You know, he's not, he's not just some guy building an orphanage. He's my brother in Christ, and he's doing a good work for the Lord. And so I feel, I feel this I feel a desire to support him, even though I'm, I'm not financially supporting him yet. I don't have the means right now, but I'm, I'm praying for him, 
and I think about him a lot. And I'm inspired by his vision. I'm inspired by his heart for what he's doing. I'm like, man, God, I want to, I want to help him. I want to, however, in whatever way that I can, I can partner along with him. I want to be a part of that. That's my, my voluntary desire. The grace of God works in me in a way that produces in me this desire to minister to the people of God. Does that make sense? So it should be voluntary. Secondly, it should be an overflow of devotion to God. In verse 5, he says, This they did not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. And so, you know, God doesn't want you to give to anyone out of a heart that's divorced from connection to him. God wants you first to be connected to him when you get connected with God, when you seek God, you seek his will for your life, you seek his agenda for the world, then he begins to paint a picture of what, your, what opportunities to give. And when you, when you have an opportunity to give that comes out of a, out of a place of your, your devotion, an overflow of that devotion that you have with God. Third, it's an outflow of genuine love. In verse 8, Paul says this explicitly. It's funny because he's saying, hey, look at these broke Macedonians and how generous they are. And by the way, Corinth, you're a pretty wealthy city. I don't know. Corinth was strategically located as it had a port on either side of it. It ran on a little strip of land. There was a port on the west side and a port on the east side. And there was just a constant stream of commerce that came through. Corinth was a, was a rich, rich city. So he's intentionally presenting these poor brothers as a, as a way to inspire and to encourage them to say, if they can do it, brothers, believe me, you can do it. And I think Paul has the same message for the American church. You know, I think we, a lot of times we feel pinched financially because we allow our expenses to grow to the margins of our income. But the reality is that, you know, most of us could tithe uh, out of what we, what we spend eating out in a month, you know. <laughs> That's just, that's just reality, what they say, like the average American eats out four times a week or something like that. If, you're, if, you're like, if your budget is like the average American, you've probably got room to make some sacrifices in order to give if we're willing to get honest with ourselves. But anyway, he says, he says so I, I'm not saying this as a command, but by the earnestness of the Macedonians, see how, how genuine they were in giving of themselves. I also want your love to be shown genuine. So he's, he's, he's saying that as you give sacrificially, as you give radically, even out of your poverty, just like Jesus pointed to the widow, right? And he said that she has demonstrated something more profound than everybody else because she has shown that she really trusts God down in, down in the trenches. So that's all she had. So when, when, when you get down to the bottom, that's when you really have the opportunity to demonstrate love. So it, there's one sense in which financial hardship is God's opportunity to you to, to show up and to show out when it comes to, it comes to trusting him. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, you'll remember, it says, God, no one should give out of compulsion. No one should give out of feeling obligated or feeling like they're having their arms twisted because God loves a cheerful giver. Now, that does not mean, I do want to say this, it does not mean that it's not okay to give because it's the right thing to do. If you know that God has told you to give and, and you are a little bit scared of giving and you're not super excited about giving, but you know that this is what God has told you to do, you need to give it and trust God knowing that you did 
the right thing. So that's not that's not compulsion in the sense of compulsion would be like I've heard of some churches that you know require members to submit their W2s and stuff like that, you know, and they're checking how much did he give, how much did he make? That's some some hardcore accountability. But uh so we're not we're not don't want anyone to feel like they're having their arm twisted to give more than they can afford to give. What we really want is for you to seek God for his grace, that your heart would be transformed by his grace and that you would give more and more and more radically. That's what I want for me. When I got saved, I think I've always assumed, I've always taken tithing to be an assumed good. And so I, before doing this sermon, I haven't really wrestled with these issues. And, I, and God has convicted me in some areas. Just I feel, I feel his finger on me to, to deal with some things and to, to get more radical in our life. It's okay. We'll be all right. <laughs> Terry's over there like, oh, no, no, not more radical. <laughs> All right, so finally, uh, patterned on the example of Jesus. So radical generosity is patterned on the the example of Jesus. In verse 9, he says, You yourselves know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Have you noticed the repetition of the word grace in this, as we've been reading through? Um, So even this, Jesus' act of self-sacrifice, of humbling himself, he says this was grace. This was the grace of Jesus. I think Paul is intentionally using the word grace. He's using it to describe God's activity. He's using it to describe Jesus' activity. And then he's also using it to describe the activity of believers. And he's saying that, that what characterizes God should characterize you as well. The grace that's at work in God, the way that God is a giver, Ought to mark your life. So he says that you yourself know that Jesus, though he was rich, uh, you can't get much richer than owning everything, right? You can't get much richer than God. He said, yet for your sake, he became poor. Um, If you would, turn to Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11 is known as, uh, theologians call it the kenosis. There's a Greek word here that means to empty. Uh, I think it's translated this way. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, or he was God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or to, to held on to, but he emptied himself. There it is. So this, this word in Greek means to, to empty, to, to pour out. But taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so he says that this Jesus, who, who was very God, the second person of the Trinity, he existed with God from eternity. There was nothing in creation that he didn't create. There was nothing in creation that he didn't own and possess. And he decided to become this poor, itinerant carpenter preacher to take on human flesh. When it says that he emptied himself, it doesn't mean that he gave up any of his deity. He didn't give up being God in any way. He emptied himself by taking on this humiliating, weak, limited human flesh to be born as a babe. Not even any room for him at the 
at the, at the midwife's house or the, the birthing center or the hospital or the inn. He, just, he, was, he was in a cave in a, a manger. The great humility of God blows my mind that he was willing to, to, to become right. what we are so that he could save us, so that he could be our representative. And that's what it means. So Keith was saying uh, during the communion time that Jesus he lived a life that led to being placed under the curse of God. And he was placed under the curse of God for our sake so that, so that the curse of God would be taken away from us and that we would receive the blessing of, of Abraham, which is the blessing of Christ, right? The grace of giving is patterned after the example of Jesus, this radical, sacrificial self-giving of Jesus, the richest of the rich becoming poor for our sake so that he could enrich our lives. And at the end of the day, that's really what radical generosity is all about, right? It starts in the heart of God. It starts with us being transformed by the grace of God. But what it's about is impoverishing our own lives voluntarily for the sake of enriching the lives of other people. And so third, radical generosity is the New Testament ideal for Christians to strive toward. An ideal is not a law. And I'm running out of time, so I'm going to have to talk about this quickly. In Matthew chapter 5, if you'll turn there, Jesus describes a shift, a paradigm shift, from being under the law and being held accountable by the exactness of the law to being held accountable by the very righteousness of God that Jesus himself was embodying and that Jesus himself was teaching. Uh, Verse 17, Jesus says these words. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. All right? And then the conclusion of the chapter, these are the bookends, if you will, of the chapter. You'll find in verse 48, he says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So he says, I didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets. I didn't come to abolish them. I've come to fulfill them. And then his conclusion is is that God's will for you is to be perfect the way that he is perfect. Well, when we hear Jesus say that you're supposed to be perfect, we don't need anybody. We don't need an exegete to tell us that that's an ideal, right? That that's not because none of us have the capacity to be perfect. But those two, those two bookends are what have led people to disagree so widely about this passage. So there are some people who look at verse 17 and they say, okay, what Jesus is saying is that we're still under the law. We still need to, to obey the moral requirements of the law, but that you know, he's, he's completed them for us, basically. And then on the other hand, the people who look at verse 48, they say, well, obviously, he's telling us to do something we don't have the capacity to do. And so the point of Jesus' teaching here is not to give us a law, but it's to show us our need for a Savior. And so those are kind of the two, the two ends of the spectrum on, on the debate. I think what he's saying I actually think Jesus is not giving us a new law. He's not giving us a new thing to, to, to be measured against and to feel shamed and condemned about. He is giving us an ideal. He's putting a target on the wall showing us what God's character is like. And people who live in God's kingdom and people who call themselves children of God, this is the ideal that we're striving for. And one day when the Son of God is revealed in glory and we're revealed in glory with him, we are going to be conformed totally to that image. So he's given us a picture of, of what we will be, 
And he shows us a picture of what we ought to be growing toward now, but I, I wouldn't call it a new law, and I wouldn't say even that we're under the old law. I would say that Jesus, when he fulfilled the law, when Paul says we're set free, he means we're set free. Um, so, but Jesus says this. He says uh, in, in verse 21 of chapter 5, I'm sorry, verse, verse 20 of chapter 5, he says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So what, what was the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees? The external righteousness, really law-keeping, right? And so they were, Jesus' main criticism of them was that they were so preoccupied with keeping this letter of the law, toeing the line with the letter of the law, that they failed to pursue the righteousness of God that the law pointed to. And that's why Jesus, when he gives them some example, he says, he says, you've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. Okay, the law says that, don't commit adultery. And so the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees is don't commit adultery. If you don't, feel, don't commit adultery, you can feel pretty good about yourself, right? But he says, I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust after her has committed adultery already with her in his heart. And so Jesus is saying that the character of God is not simply refraining from committing adultery. The character of God is a heart of purity, a heart that is, that is free from, from that inclination toward lust, that, that uh, free, from, free from slavery to lust. This is the target on the wall. This is where we're headed. There are many ways to fall short of the glory of God that are not breaking the law. So, so you can keep the law and still fall short of the glory of God because the glory of God is be perfect. His, his glorious perfections, be, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So that's what we're striving toward, and that's what we're aiming for by the, by the grace of God. But we need him to do it in us. And so if we take that principle that this principle that God is calling us to a higher righteousness uh, and apply it to the question of giving. I think that what the conclusion I would come to is that I would, I would not be comfortable giving less than 10% because that, the 10% is the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, right? And so Jesus, did, he did fulfill that, that requirement, but then if we look toward the, the righteousness of God, that loftier ideal, what we see is... Not less than tithing, it's beyond tithing. And if you look through the New Testament at all of the examples of, of giving, I think they're all in it. We would probably say they're all in excess of 10%. The widow's might, how much does she give? 100%, right? Uh, in the book of Acts, when, when people start selling their property and bringing it to the um, apostles to distribute as any had need, it doesn't tell us what percentage it is, but the I, it's, it's supposed to give you the impression that it's a, a radical yeah. gift that these guys are giving. Uh, also, I think about Zacchaeus in Luke 19, even though his gift is sort of a, retribu- a gift of rest- restitution, when, he, when Jesus calls him, Zacchaeus says, if I've defrauded anyone, I will pay back four times as much. Well, so he's saying, if I defrauded them, I'll pay back four times more than what I defrauded him. So his heart, right, is is not just to pay back what he owes, but to go radically beyond what he what he defrauded. 
And Jesus' response to that is, wow, it's very obvious to me that salvation has come to this house because this man has been radically changed and radically open-handed. So application, real quick. Ask God to transform you by his grace. Uh, this is the first thing that we need. And there's no matter where you're at in your giving, there's no person here that doesn't need more transformation of the heart by God's grace to give, to give more. And again, we're not, we are talking about finances, but I also have in mind more than finances. You know, there are, some of us are generous with money and stingy with our time. And some of us are, are, are uh, open-handed with our time and our talents, but we're stingy with our money. So we need God to do a radical work of grace in our heart that, that makes us open-handed with all of who we are, that we give ourselves completely to God, and out of the overflow of that devotion to God, we give freely to other people. So ask God to transform you by his grace. I encourage you to develop a disciplined giving plan because we do have a tendency to let our expenses grow to the margins of our income. Most people, if you just try to give intuitively, you will always end up not giving or giving very small amounts. Last year, adults ages 18 to 35, 84% of them gave less than $50 in the entire year to anything. And in that same category of, of adults, one of, the, one of their uh, characteristics, the way that they uh, said that their idea of generosity was spontaneity. Uh, well, I, I like to be spontaneous with my giving. Well, you, you know, must not have had many spontaneous moments over the years. Uh, so so the, the, if you want to be a, 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 a radical giver, you need to develop a disciplined plan of giving, right? And I, I do recommend 10% as a healthy and helpful starting point. Not as, not as the law, but I think that that's a, that's a good place to start. Uh, Keith has mentioned several times that Randy Alcorn calls those the training wheels of giving. I think it's a great place to start for developing a discipline. Here's, here's the, when I was talking about the law and grace, one of the problems that we have with tithing, this is one of the reasons that I don't like teaching tithing, is because we make it a ceiling yeah. instead of a floor. And people, just like the Pharisees, felt pretty good about themselves for not committing adultery. We give our 10% and say, yeah, I did it. (laughs) Right? And we never, and we never, we're not open for God to call us up to to more radical ways of giving. So I really do encourage you to to be disciplined in that and and to think of 10% as a floor. And then do, once you've got that, disciplined plan in place where you are giving in a disciplined way be open to spontaneous opportunities be open to i i would love we're, i mean we're we're kind of broke as a church you know we're kind of small we don't we don't have a lot uh, of income here but you know what i would love like when i think about benevolence needs and and people even in our family that ha- that have needs i would love to see our community groups leading the charge in meeting those financial needs as as one family is struggling that another family would be willing to come alongside and help them. And that's the picture that Paul tells us, right? He's, when he's talking about the Macedonian believers, he says they had this, this, this heart for the church at Jerusalem. And we didn't have time to look at it, but if you read chapter 9, he says that your gift of grace to the church at Jerusalem, it causes them to long for you, and it causes them to pray for you. Radical generosity creates unity. People love generous people. Ain't that true? I think it is. Uh, okay, <clears throat> last, uh, respond to those spontaneous opportunities. Thinking of radical generosity as an ideal, 
this is my, my final encouragement to you, is to think of it as an ideal. So if you're at a place where your expenses have grown to the margins of your income, or if you're at a place where you're so covered up in debt that you just can't even imagine how you could, you could start giving, would you just think of it as an ideal, and would you take that first step? And that may be, if, you, if you've got a lot, of, a lot of debt, the first step toward obedience in this area might be seeking some counsel. It might be talking to a debt counselor, talking to a pastor, seeing if you can figure, help getting some other people involved in the conversation to figure out, I want to be obedient. I honestly don't feel like I can right now, but, I, but I'm willing to, to talk about it. I'm willing to take these steps, right? This is what the church is supposed to be, to be vulnerable and honest with each other. And if you are at a place where you, you can start giving, but you're like, man, 10% is a lot, Whatever is a first step, would you just pray and seek God and whatever is a first step for you in pursuing that ideal of radical generosity, I just invite you to take that first step.